Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I'm just very thankful to be able to be here this morning and thankful for this opportunity. I'm just thinking of all the grace God has shown me just to be able to, I don't deserve to be able to be up here to do this, but he's an awesome God that just gives us so many things we don't deserve. So thankful. I'm thankful for all the encouragement I got from all my other brothers, Brian and Matt, Pat. So thank you guys. All right, church. Well, even though it's Mother's Day, we've decided to keep going through Luke. And so um, we're in Luke chapter 16, and we're picking up this morning in verse 19. And I want to just go ahead before we start off and read the passage. So we're going to read uh, 19 through 31. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with crumb, with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send me to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to the, them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've done everything that could be done to change our lives, to help save us. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, send your spirit to come and enlighten this text this morning. I pray that you would use it to change our lives and draw us near to you, that we may walk in a way that is the way that you intended for us to walk, in a way that fulfills us, and that you would just bless the hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 
I think I say start out with the same introduction every time, but when Pat sent out this the email, and he kind of lays it out, you know, I know uh, I I immediately didn't recognize like which section this was, so I went and opened up my Bible, I read it, and this I've read this, I'm familiar with this story, I know this story, and but it's almost like my heart kind of sank with the heaviness of it, because it's probably one of the the most heavy passages in, in all of Scripture, and uh, it was difficult, but I'm hoping uh, this morning that what God is kind of working out in me through this passage will will kind of come to some of you guys, and that uh, some of the consolation that I've gotten, you'll also be able to get, but <clears throat> it's all... Like uh, Doug said last week, we don't get to skip over the the hard passages, and I think his passage may have been harder than mine. But this isn't really that easy of a subject either. Um, we could, when we talk about you know what the consequences are of you know rejecting God's free gift to us of salvation through His Son Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and. I'm just going to do a, take a couple seconds to discuss the background of where we're at. I know this has been talked about every week, but I need a reminder, so maybe y'all need a reminder too. This passage, Jesus is teaching this passage to, um, in a four-month period leading up to his death, somewhere between uh, Hanukkah, which would have been, I guess, and Passover. And that Passover that I'm talking about is the one where he eventually goes and he's crucified. So we're, we're in that period. And he's giving all these lessons. We've been going through these lessons week after week in Luke. And the um, he's, he's preparing his disciples for his eventual death. And that preparation, he's preparing them. They're going to set up the church. And he's preparing them for what life is going to be like in the church age to some, to some extent. And so it's applicable to us. And he's also... He's addressing the Pharisees during this time. He's confronting them with their rejection of him. And in, in some ways, he is hardening their hearts because he's pressing them a little bit further. And he's arranging for, the, for his own death through that conflict. But he's also doing it as, as, as an act of mercy. He's witnessing to them. And they've, they've pushed harder and harder against back at him and it's almost like during this passage, he reaches a crescendo where, I don't know if it is a crescendo, but he, he goes ahead and he, he opens the door and he pulls the curtain back on what it's really going to be like for them if, if they continue in, in this rejection. And so it's an act of mercy that he is, he's showing to them. I think he loves us and he loved them and he wasn't just going let it, to let it go. He's going to do everything that he could to change their hearts and our hearts. Um, but these, these teachings that, we, that we've had during this time period of his ministry, there's some themes that are in Luke and that kind of cover these. And there are two of them, one is in Luke 13.30. Um, it, it's in, Behold, there are last who shall be first, and there are first shall be last. I'm sure you're, you're all familiar with that. In Luke 14, 11, for everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. If you think about those two phrases, they kind of characterize, the, to some degree, the broader picture of the teaching that we've been going through. And they definitely characterize um, 
this account that Jesus gives right here of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the rich man and Lazarus is a response to the Pharisees. If we go back a couple weeks, you know, uh, Pat taught on the unrighteous steward. And following that parable, um, where at the end of it, Jesus says, uh, you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and money. They, being lovers of money, they, they sneered at him or they mocked at him. And he gives a response. And that response was two-part. One part was what uh, Doug dealt, Doug did last week, and the second part is what I'm doing this week. And this story, or this account, I say account because a lot of people teach that this is a parable. Some people teach that it's a true story. Jew Jewish parables tended to not have people's names. And so they, this doesn't really fit with that idea that this is just a story that Jesus made up. But it's more of an account of something that really happened. And even if you can't prove that, what, what, is, what is in this account, the hard facts of it line up with other things in Scripture, which we'll go over today, which very clearly are not stories in what the Bible teaches about hell are true. So it's not just an over-exaggeration of something that's going to happen in the future. It's what, what the Bible teaches. So we have these Pharisees. Money had become an idol to them. And Jesus is addressing that. Um, in their culture, money was, if you were wealthy, you were considered uh, blessed by God. The righteous were usually wealthy because they followed God. And so they had kind of taken that point and they had used it to gain power and to extort the people. And to some degree, that this, this account is a picture of what they were doing. So we got to be careful when we're talking about the Pharisees not to judge them. You know, we're, except for God's grace, are just like them. And the more I think about this, lovers of money, I'm a lover of money. I mean, who isn't? Who doesn't say, boy, it would be nice to be rich? Or, boy, it would be nice to have that? Or, if I just had enough money, I could make my dreams come true. Uh, we're all guilty of thinking that at one time or another, if not more times than not. And I know I certainly am. And so it doesn't just apply to them. It doesn't just apply just because you don't have enough to make it all come true for yourself doesn't mean that your heart isn't in that place. And so as we're going through this passage, we see a rich man who got his priorities out of line. And he took the... He took the scriptures and he bent them to the desires of his heart. He made them be what he wanted them to be. Instead of making, bending his heart to the scriptures and changing his heart. And we need to be thinking about what in our lives are we doing that with? What, in what way are we saying, are we corrupting what we hear in this word to make it fit what we want, the way we want it to be? Um... So let's, let's go ahead and get into the text here. It says in Luke 16, 19, verse 19, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So we have this man, and 
he's very, very wealthy. Uh, he doesn't have to work. Um, he's enjoying every day. These, by, by saying that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, I'm sure that y'all are overly familiar with this, but purple was, it took a thousand murex snails to dye one garment or murex shellfish. And they had to be trapped. They were trapped nearly to extinction. So the more people wanted the purple, the less of them there were. You had to pay more and more for it. A pound of purple gold, uh, wool was equal to a pound of gold in worth or more. So not only that, it was a symbol of power. Uh, during the Roman Empire at one time, especially when it came to purple uh, silk, if you even if you had the money, you weren't allowed to wear it. You had to be of a certain status to put any purple on your garment. You, you couldn't just go and just get it and wear it. That was not allowed. It was a symbol of who you were and that you were in charge. And so this guy is living in luxury and opulence and grandeur. And I would say that he's the definition of somebody who had actually found his life. We think of, you know, you, I want you to be thinking that. What does that mean to have found your life? Well, he had found it. He was... He had gotten his life to be the way that he wanted it to be, to some extent. Um, and we have this contrast with this other guy on the other end of the spectrum. In verse uh, 20 and 21, it says, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longed to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So we have a man, um, and we're going to find out these are both guys in Israel because they both refer to uh, Abraham as their father. But uh, he's so weak that he can't walk, and he has to be carried. And I'm, I'm guessing whoever his companions were were too poor to take care of him, probably having to work all day to try and survive themselves. And they drop him off at this, this rich man's gate. And he's covered with sores, so it could have been, he could have had a disease, but could have just not had enough to eat, got so weak he had to lay down. Then he's laying on hard surfaces, gets sores, doesn't have enough nutrition to heal. He's got these dogs. In the ancient world, especially biblical times, it wasn't a positive thing. You know, they, people didn't feed dogs. And they're hungry, and they're coming, and they're they're licking on his open wounds. I mean, it's a, it's a disgusting uh, situation. There, it really you can't be any worse off than this man was. I I don't believe he's exposed. He's out there in the elements, and he's got nothing and nobody. And not only that, his uh, his destiny would have been considered unknown. In other words. In the, in the culture of Israel at that time, if you're that poor, it's because God, the thinking was, it's because, well, maybe there's some sin in his life we don't know about. And that's why, uh, you know, he's that poor and unfortunate. And so, you know, your poverty almost, it puts you at a state of, you know, being accused by others. It, it was shaming. And so we have this contrast. One guy's covered in purple, the other guy's covered in scabs. One guy's feasting every day, living luxuriously, the other guy's starving to death. And he's, you know, he's looking for the crumbs from uh, 
the rich man's table. Literally, it's just like he's looking for the stuff after the guy eats. You know, he's brushing himself off. And the Lazarus is longing to get just that little bit that's falling from, from his hands after he eats. Um, you know, Lazarus means helped by God. That's what it means. It means help from God or help by God. And here we have this guy, and his earthly life does not characterize that at all, does it? So why did they lay this guy at the rich man's gate? Now, obviously, one of the reasons was is he's the guy that had the means that if he wanted to, he could have probably done something to make a difference in this guy's life. He could have fed him if he had the money, had the resources. But not only that, he was commanded to do so. The Old Testament commands, commanded them to care for the poor. Over 30 times, it tells, tells them over and over, if you read through, that God cared about the poor. And if you had anything, you're, you were to share it. It says, Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is repeated in the New Testament. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. In 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In Proverbs 22.22, do not exploit the poor. They are poor and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and exact Life for life. In Psalm 12:5, because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. So we know from after reading through the passage that the rich man doesn't end up in a good place. And it's not just because he passed a homeless guy on the street one time and didn't give him some money. It's that he had built a lifestyle where he had become blind to, these, to this man. And he had justified his means of getting wealthy to the degree where he could no longer see him. Um, there's, I want to talk about a, a principle. C.S. Lewis kind of said, if you... See, if, if you want to do what God wants you to do, and you also want to do what you, get, you want to do, there won't be enough left for you after you do what God wants you to do to live on. That's a paraphrase. But basically what, he's, what, I, what I'm trying to say here is, we become Christians, you're exposed to the Word of God, and you read it, and you say, all right, I'm going to do that. You're, and you do one thing, but your, your life is still centered on your things here on the earth. And you read it, and you're convicted, and you do another thing. And you read it, and you're convicted, and you do another thing, right? And let's just say you did that over a course of a day. The time left at the end of the day for you to do the things for you that are going to make you happy, if your life is centered on making yourself happy with the things of this world, whatever that may be, whether it's whatever's left over will not be enough to make you happy, will not be enough to live on. And we as believers... Our job is to slowly, you know, we're trying to give those things up to the Lord and find our, our life more and more in Him, in the things that are of this world. And we're, we're in the, we're, our job is to cast them off. 
But you can also go in the other direction. Because if you're not finding your life in Him, you're finding it in the world, it's going to take more and more and more to fulfill you, to take that place that God is supposed to fill in your life. It's a big place. We are built for security. We're built for something to make us feel whole. And if we try and find that in wealth, it's not going to be enough. So, you know, the, we all know the quote from John D. Rockefeller when they asked him, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. The more think about it, he wasn't joking. How much would it take for you to be fulfilled? That's why the rich man was living the way he was. He was fulfilling himself trying through his feasting, through the opulence, for, through, through using that to meet his emotional needs by feeling powerful around other people, however, however you want to look at it. And that need that he has grows, just like a, any other addiction grows. It grew and it was consuming. And through that, through that, you can justify anything. You can, I'm sure that he had his ways of justifying the text, whether he saw these people and he said, like, like you or I might do well, they should just, they need to work harder. They need to do, do what I did. I was successful. Why don't they do that? You know, I think we all are guilty of doing this to one degree or other, judging others, uh, where we, we say, well, if I was in their situation, I would do better. Or I was in their situation, and I did do better. And now, now I can take care of myself. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if it weren't for God's grace, you wouldn't be where you are in your life right now. However, if you were in somebody else's shoes that isn't as good well off as you, and you had their personality or their weaknesses or their circumstances, their parents, you do not know. You could be far worse than they are. They may be doing way better than you are. You know? So we are all on a different playing field. And one day it's all going to get leveled out. And we are not to look at other people and judge them. That's God's job. And he commands us to view other people with compassion. And he commands us to, to care about them. And especially, this passage is talking about compassion with regards to accumulated wealth. In the, in the church, we are not that good at this. Uh, especially today, the evangelical church has kind of got, gone away from this kind of teaching through as liberal liberalism entered like a heresy into the church over the past hundred years, and um, and the kind of kind of like Christianity was kind of gutted from the Jesus ceased to be you know being taught as a supernatural as as God. He's just a good man. And salvation doesn't mean, you know, giving your life to Jesus. It means just doing good things. Or, you know, it just kind of was like kind of like whitewashed and really helping the poor or being good to other people was kind of taking the taking the places the, of the gospel by the secular world. The evangelical church re reacted against that. And they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They said, you know. Whereas one time you couldn't find a hospital or an orphanage or anything that did, wasn't tied to a church or some kind of Christian organization, 
we kind of got, got this mindset where, well, they're, if they're not sharing the gospel, that's what really matters. Help, just helping people out doesn't matter because um, it's not sharing the gospel. And, and we just kind of got rid of it and we separated ourselves from it. And really, I don't think you can go through this text and not think about where, what your role is and the fact that the things that we have aren't our own and that they're, and they're God's. And it's really not even about us. It's not about helping the poor. It's about the state of our hearts and where we're placing our, our, our value. Because really, this man is convicted because he has no compassion with his wealth. And that is the state of a damned person. Remember that. When you're, that is the characteristic of the damned. Someone that's going to hell is they have no compassion on some, someone less than them with the stuff that they have. I'll just leave it at that. Let's move on. Let's see here. To 22. It says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and was buried. So what's Abraham's bosom? In the Old Testament, uh, Sheol was kind of a general term that, refer, that people used to refer to all the afterlife. And there's kind of four compartments in Sheol. One of them is Abraham's bosom. And it's the compartment of kind of the underworld where the righteous dead went. And it symbolized, it symbolized uh, blessedness, came with the idea that you're going to where your forefathers were. That's why it's called Abraham's bosom. And it, the term was only used in rabbinic literature, but Jesus uses it here, and he doesn't discount it. Um, but uh, it, Jesus called the place paradise, at the end of Luke, to the thief on the cross. He's actually talking about Abraham's bosom at that point. Because until Christ's death, you couldn't go directly into the presence of God. And the reason why that is, is because the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to atone for, for sin. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Jesus died, he died for all sins, past, present, and future. It was something that went out in all directions. Romans 3.25, it says, Because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. And so God didn't judge those people who were trusting that a, a Savior was going to come. In Hebrews 9.15, it says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So it's, it's talking about how he, he, he covered the death of those saints. But we no longer, when we, you and I die, we don't go to Abraham's bosom anymore. We go directly into the presence of God. And... In Ephesians 4, 8, it talks about how Jesus followed the same path that someone who would have died before he died would have done. He went down into Abraham's bosom, and there he proclaimed to the righteous dead that 
the sacrifice had been made and then atonement had been made and he also proclaimed to those that were in hell that their judgment was now finalized. The deal had been sealed. It says in four, it, This comes from Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive the captives. When he went up, he, led, he took the people that had been captive, and he gave gifts to the people. He ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth, he who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. I'm not going to die over this point, if you all don't agree with me on it. But um, we know now that when we go, we go into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8, that we are of good cur courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with, and to be home with the Lord. So... Just, I'm going over all this because this passage kind of describes a lot of these things, and it kind of will help clarify as you go through Scripture what these different places are. It kind of like, when you're reading it, because of the way things are translated, everything just kind of seems to just be all melted into the same place. But Jesus' death had consequences. And one of the consequences was that the people that were waiting for his atonement didn't have to wait any longer. Now, the unrighteous dead in the old times, and the unrighteous dead from today still go to the same place. They go to Hades, which the, the Scripture talks about basically um, two places that are quote-unquote hell. And one of them is Hades, which is in the same area as Abraham's bosom. As we can see it described in the parable, you have on one side, you have the side that's paradise, and you have one side, the side that's hell. And that side that's hell is described as Hades. And that side is described in Scripture as having three compartments. One of them is, is the place where the unrighteous get, dead go, and it's a place of torment and burning. Two is, an, is the second place is the abyss, and that's where God would send angels for, as a temporary place of confinement. Um, we see it, it's talked about in Re Revelation 9 that the demons are allowed up after being held in the abyss, so it's temporary. Or, and we also see in Revelation 20 that Satan is chained during the millennium in the abyss. So he's temporarily put down there, and then he's let back out. And then third is the mention in Scripture, which briefly is a place called Tartarus, and that's a permanent place of permanent confinement for, for fallen angels or demons. So... There's a difference between the hell that is down in the depths of the earth and the eternal place of judgment, which is the lake of fire. Um, hell is a part of this first creation. And the lake of fire is where people are going to go at the judgment after the white throne judgment. They'll be resurrected and they'll go to the lake of fire. It's also called Gehenna. Gehenna is a term from the Old Testament from the Hinnom Valley, and it's where they would do child sacrifice and burn their children alive. And that all that there was like a satanic in the rabbinic literature, there is it was it had a, like a satanic nature to it. And it's where kind of some of the there's rabbinic ideas that flow into this, but basically. That's the earthly picture that we have of what it's going to be like. But the difference between the lake of fire and Hades is that 
The lake of fire is a place where you're going to suffer. Not just soul, your soul won't just be in suffering, but your body will as well. I want to read a couple of, couple of passages on this. One is Revelation 14.9. It says, through 11, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So we see that they're going to suffer forever and ever. But some people say, well, that's just for the people that uh, receive the mark of the beast. Well, no, later on in Revelation, he goes on to talk about how all, peop- all the, the wicked dead will go into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A lot of the times when Jesus, when Jesus talks about hell, he's actually using this term Gehenna. And he's talking about the second death. And our translators just translate it to generic term hell. But um, like in Luke, I read at least 10 examples where Jesus is actually using this word Gehenna. Like in Luke 12, 5, it says, Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That hell there is Gehenna. He's talking about the second judgment, the second death, the lake of fire. Where it's not just your soul, but your body's laying there in the grave. It's a resurrected body that gets thrown into the lake of fire. So that was a long aside where we talk about what the Bible talks about about the afterlife, but I just wanted to clarify some of those points. Let's go back in verse 23. It says, In Hades, and it's talking about the rich man here, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, being... Sorry, I'm concerned about my time. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me. Send at Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So basically, the rich man is there in hell, and he looks across and he can see Lazarus and Abraham. And Lazarus is in comfort, and he's being tormented, and he wants some kind of comfort from his torment. And he's experiencing uh, two, two, two things that he's experiencing here. One is 
a terrible thirst. It's overwhelming him. Even though he's in flame, this thirst is eating him up. Um, I recently uh, was reading this book by Ernest Shackleton about his journey to the South Pole. And those guys, they go down there, and they're, they're in the Antarctic, and they're suffering freezing temperatures. They're, they got stuck. They got shipwrecked. I don't know the story, but they get shipwrecked down there. It's an amazing story of survival. But they suffer starvation and frostbite. Some of them have to lose, lose appendages. And they're in the cold, in the wet, in the rain, and freezing. He says the worst thing, though, the worst thing of the whole thing, was that they could never get enough to drink. They were thirsting all the time. Part of the time they were in boats, and they couldn't collect enough water. And everything is, all the fresh water is frozen, so they're trying to thaw it. He says that the whole thing, they're out there over a year and a half suffering. He says the worst thing that you can experience, he believes the worst thing you experience in this life is thirst. And that's what this man is experiencing. And one of the one, it's hard for us, I think, to, to remember. A lot of us don't even remember what it's like to be thirsty. Every time we get thirsty, we just drink, a drink, drink, drink water. I mean, when was the last time you really were thirsty and couldn't get anything to drink? It's not, it's, not a pleasant, it's not a pleasant feeling. But this guy is thirsty, and that thirst is never slaked. And he's also burning. He's on, he, he is on fire. I, I, I want to take some time and really meditate on what this looks like. I don't know when the last time, being on fire is probably one of the worst pains you can experience in this life. I remember the first time I was burning, I'll never forget it. I was making fine with Dermy car with my dad and he was dripping, we dripped the lead into the car and I touched that hot lead and it hurt. And that was, that, that was bad. But that's nothing to compare to people that really had, had a burn. I remember uh, Shannon, Y'all know Shannon and Amy. Shannon told me he was there when his dad was really badly burned. He spilled boiling water on himself. And he said it had a profound effect on Shannon because he was telling me about it. He said, I've never seen someone like my dad. He considered his dad a very tough man. He said, I've never seen someone cry out like, like my dad cried out after spilling that boiling water on him. And that went away fairly quickly. But the terrible, the terrible thing about this is that Scripture teaches, and I hate to teach this, that this does not ever go away. It doesn't stop. There's no relief to this suffering. Scripture teaches that it goes on forever and ever, and it doesn't change. Once we leave this life, we enter a state of eternity, and we leave time. Whether it's for us, we, and we go to heaven, or if you reject Jesus, and you go to hell. But that goes on forever and ever. I remember my dad telling, giving this illustration. One time when I was preaching, he said, if you can imagine all the sand of the seashores of the earth and all those grains of sand, but it, the earth was not just covered with sand and there was nothing else on it, but completely made of sand, as big as this whole wall. And there was a bird, and the bird had a job, and his job was to fly for 1,000 miles and move one grain of sand, no, for 1,000 years, across the universe. And it took him a thousand years to go to this other place and come back. And every time he makes a trip, it takes him 2,000 years. And he goes and he gets one grain of sand and you're waiting. And he goes and he goes back 2,000 years, back and forth. And if you waited the entire time it took that bird 
to move every grain of sand from this earth to another place, which would seem like forever. If you waited that entire time in hell, you wouldn't be one day closer, one minute closer to being over with. There is no being over with. And that's what the scripture teaches. It's a hard, hard thing to accept. If you really choose to dwell on it and accept it for what it is. We can't just throw it aside. Um, there's a lot of people that want, don't want to believe that. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews, it is appointed for men to die once, and this comes the judgment. So we don't get second chances, and there's a lot at stake. And it's good for us as Christians to, to take some time and meditate about this. So moving on, in verse 16, he says, But Abraham but Abraham said to him, so he's asked for some water from the, from the, from the, from the poor man. Basically, you know, when, when Lazarus was just hoping for some little crumbs off the man's hands, off the man's table, now this guy, the roles have been reversed. He's hoping for just a little bit of water to drip off of Lazarus's finger, fall into his mouth. And it's it. Lazarus is in paradise. All When we look through Scripture, paradise is always characterized as having, having waters in it. And Jesus said, come to me and you will never thirst again. All right, drink the water that I offer you and you'll never thirst again. I want to kind of miss that point, but I don't want to leave it, leave it out. So he's, he's complaining to Abraham, but Abraham responds to him. He says, but child, remember that during your life you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So Abraham makes two points, and I got this from Tommy Nelson, the way he put it, but he says, one, it's too late. What You lived your life, and the, choice now, the, choi the choices that we make here in this life have consequences. And so it's too late now. Nothing can be done. And two, it's too far. There's, there's a, even if it wasn't too late, even if something could be done to bring you over, there's a chasm fixed, and nothing can be done. The consequences are eternal, and they can't be changed. So finally he says to him, the rich man, realizing that his, his hope is lost, that he has no chance, he turns to Abraham and he says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So he still wants Lazarus to do his bidding. It's pretty interesting. First he wanted him to dip his finger, and he kind of really hasn't changed into his, in his attitude towards Lazarus. But he's like, send him to my father's house. If, uh, if somebody from the dead comes, then they'll believe. And I'm thinking that he's looking back at his life. And he's seeing the way that he hardened his heart against the Scriptures. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them, hear, let them hear them. See, he had made justification in his life against the scriptures. 
He had heard it. He'd heard the scriptures, and he had hardened his heart. He had heard the scriptures, and he had hardened the, the, his heart. He had made his excuses why what loving your neighbor at your, as himself wasn't really that important. And because of that, he knew that that wouldn't work for his brothers. And so he says, well, maybe if they see a miracle, maybe if they see somebody, a phantom from the dead, that that's going to that's gonna change them. Um, but Abraham says, they, he tells them that they won't believe him. The, the word of God is the most powerful thing that there is to change people's hearts. They weren't, they're not going to believe miracles. They're not going to believe it if something happens. They're not going to believe any circumstance changing is not going to change people's hearts. God has given us the scriptures. And the scriptures, and we know this, we know this from reading the Bible, that it's a supernatural book. Hebrews 4.12, we know this passage, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why it's important not only for ourselves to read, our, read the word, because it changes us, but when we're witnessing, one of the things my dad tries to do is always just get them to hear the word. When, you're, when we're witnessing, use your Bible. Use, use the scriptures and read it verbatim. You know, I sit up here and I paraphrase things. I don't think it's as powerful. God wrote it in a, in a way that he intended. And that's why it's important to memorize scripture. I'm not that good at memorizing. Sometimes when I'm at work, if I can't remember, I'll just say, hold on just a second. And I'll get out my phone and I'll pull it out and I'll read it. And that, is, that goes out into eternity. That's the one way that we, we, we serve him because it goes in and it stays with people. And whether they want to deny it to themselves or not, I believe that they realize that it's the word of God and it has, and it has an effect. And that's why it's so dangerous when you, we harden our hearts against the word of God because there's nothing going to help you once you sell that down the river. So finally, in verse 30, Abraham responds to this, this request. He says, No father. He says, No father. Sorry, I kind of messed up here. I didn't read verse 30. But he said, No father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So we know that Jesus, when Jesus said this, and this is one of the things that Jesus is so merciful. He saw that the, he saw that the, the, the leadership was rejecting him. And he prophesied, this, this isn't just a story, it's also a prophecy. Because he's prophesying that we know that not very far down the road, Jesus, is, Jesus had promised that he's going to give one more sign, the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is, resur- is the resurrection from that dead, of the dead. And he says, he's prophesying, look, not only does this guy not believe it here, but I'm going to do it. He doesn't come out and say it, but everyone that heard it, when they heard a guy named, also named Lazarus, it's a po- it was, there's more than one guy named Lazarus, also named Lazarus gets resurrected. What did they do? 
Not only did they not believe, they sought and seek to kill Jesus because, because it was so powerful and people were believing. In John 12, it says they sought to kill Lazarus too to get rid of the evidence. It doesn't matter what miracle Jesus performed. His claim as the authority, his, just like the Word of God is, is an authority, and it, it puts a claim on our lives, and that we, we either have to surrender to it. If you think that you will not, that if Jesus was here today, if I think this, it's easy to think this, if Jesus was here today and he told me what to do, I would do it. But if you listen, if you read the Word of God and it tells you what to do and you won't do it, you won't do it if Jesus is standing there telling you to do it either. Okay? They're the same person. John, what does John 1 say? I'm blanking now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They are the same. And so let's not kid ourselves about how, what our circumstances may be. That if they were just different, we would do different. But God, that prophecy was merciful because what it did was the people could see that their leadership was hard-hearted. And it gave them an opportunity to say, you know what, no matter what this guy does, they don't. And in his mercy, Jesus is doing everything possible to bring people to himself. And I, the reason why I'm making that point is because God does not want people to go to hell. He's willing to do anything to keep it from happening. He sent his own son to keep it from happening. And it's easy for the world to sit there and say, well, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. But God is willing to do anything to keep people from going to hell. And just because our finite minds, when we say that, and that's something that, that I, even, even I struggle with a little bit. When, I, when we say that, we're taking one, that we, what, what the, one part of what the God, Bible says about God. What's one, one part of the Bible says is he's all-powerful and he can do anything that he wants to do. So he can throw people in hell. But the Bible also says that our God is love. And just because we as finite people can't understand how those two things could go on and we can't mesh them together does not mean it's true. And you can't take one of the Bible part of the Bible and claim it to be true and reject another part. In Ezekiel 18, it says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, not rather that he should turn from his way and live. In other words, he has no pleasure in it. He would rather him turn from his way. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Man, out of time. So, two quick application points, and then this will be over. One, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, or it's questionable, my advice to you is not to leave this room, not to leave this church without going up to someone here and saying, I want to give my life to Jesus. You don't get a million chances to repent in this life. Every time you make a, every time you make a choice, you don't know. You may leave this, this room and get distracted and push it down, and it may go on to the point where 15 years from now, you can't remember what really was bothering you, and it's Satan's goal to deceive us and to cloud our minds just long enough till we don't make that decision 
and we step into eternity with him and go into hell with him. That's, that's, what, that's, that's the battle that's going on. Two, if you're a believer here today, which I believe is most of you guys, I know you, don't push this truth down, that the judgment is real. And when we take it and we soften it, which I, I'm guilty of this, we take it and we soften the truth about the fate of unbelievers, it takes the edge off of what our responsibility is. But that's the biggest thing that really affected me. Why did I not like this passage? Because it requires so much of me. You can't go through your everyday life. Everything starts to matter. The way you walk, the way you talk. Why does it matter? Because we are ambassadors for Christ. We're having an influence on the people that are around us. And our walk matters. Yes, we're saved. Yes, he forgives us for everything that we do. But it matters to other people because we have a chance right now. Our chance is now to make a difference. And we're going to go before the Bema seat and the Lord's going to ask, what did you do? And, you know, if we take and we soften this, then we soften our motivation to reach out for the world because it takes courage. It's painful. Look what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus ended up with nothing. We don't know what his life was like. We know that he was saved. And he made choices, and that's where his choices, which were obviously godly enough to get him to be with God, that's where they led him. So it's painful. This Christian life is painful. And without living in this truth, you're not going to make those same choices. And lastly, we're not to be looking for this world. You know, Abraham's bosom is called that because the father Abraham was there. What was unique about Abraham's faith? God sent him from the land of Ur, and he's, he's traveling around the country in tent, in living in a tent. And I always wondered, you know, why did God have him do that? Why did he have him live his whole life in a tent? He never really got the promised land, so to speak. But God was having him make a statement. And that statement was, and it's in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Which city? What city is there whose architect and builder is God? The New Jerusalem. That new Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21, 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as bride, a bride adorned for her husband. We have two choices. We can live for this life, for the acclaim of men, and you know what's going to happen at the end in your death? The rich man's name is not named in this story. What, one of the reasons why maybe why it's not named? Because he was a nobody. He was nobody. Once we die, unless you mean something to Jesus Christ, unless you know him, even if your name is Elon Musk or whoever famous important guy, I hope Elon's a believer, becomes a believer. But if he doesn't, you and I won't be talking about him in eternity. But we're, we're to live with the, the other perspective, just like Abraham did, waiting around, walking around, waiting for that city with, that wasn't built 
with hands coming down out of heaven. I'm out of time, so let's pray.